Welcome to Blogs on Tape. Today's post is Fighting Goblins in a Creative Wasteland, written by Gus L. and originally published on his blog Dungeon of Signs at dungeonofsigns.blogspot.com. Fighting Goblins in a Creative Wasteland. Recently, Cecilia de Anastasio of the relatively mainstream web publication Kotaku published a long piece on the subject of fighting goblins in Dungeons and Dragons, and how it is the worst. I don't disagree with her that the sort of tedious back and forth of melee attacks until the inevitable conclusion where the victorious party of adventurers stand atop a pile of dead goblins she describes is the worst of tabletop gaming, and agree that the reasons she identifies describe the problem fairly well. Annoyance at a mundane direct conflict and head-to-head combat where the opposition does not and cannot bring complex tactics to the fight, and where because of their perceptions about the enemy, the players don't feel risk or excitement. Boredom and frustration created by the lack of notable or intriguing elements about the monsters to make them wondrous, interesting, exciting, or compelling. The problem D'Anastasio identifies is this complex and twofold at least, both diegetic, relating to the story or narrative and how it's told, and mechanical, relating to how the gamified rules and procedures of combat function. In De Anastasio's game, and many others I suspect, the goblin encounter is both boring and frustrating because there's nothing interesting to learn about goblins or the setting from the encounter, and there is no risk or tension in the encounter. This first problem is the one De Anastasio provides a prescription to, and her prescription, like her diagnosis, is fundamentally right, but doesn't go very far. De Anastasio suggests that the GM combine the cliched combat encounter with any of those other things, puzzle solving or story development, discovery. This creative impulse is good, but might not get one very far as long as goblins remain two-dimensional, known quantities that present no threat, but can only be encountered in combat. Goblins are boring. De Anastasio describes her typical goblin encounter. The goblins appear, as they always do, in tattered clothes and with knives or maybe little short bows. They are small, green, and pointy-toothed. They are produced in a factory, I think. This likely rings true for a lot of tabletop players. Goblins are almost always described in a boring and dull manner, and exist only as an afterthought on a random encounter table, or as a default low-threat opponent. There's a lot a good GM can do to prevent this, none of which 5th edition seems to want to clue its players into. A. Don't call them goblins. It really is this simple. Goblin brings an immediate image to mind for any RPG player, or almost anyone exposed to popular fantasy since 1974. See note on vanilla D&D below. Weak, small, variously ugly, and likely green. More importantly though, Goblin is a name that defines an enemy as weak, easily defeated fodder. I still pretty much remember the goblin statline from the 1981 basic set, and the specific mechanical aspects of a potential foe is the last thing one wants a player to be thinking about when they start an encounter. Even for players that don't have the details memorized from past experience, the cultural baggage that word goblin carries sets one's goblin's encounter down a well-trodden path. 
This is why a decent GM will never describe a monster by the name in the monster manual, but rather describe it in some detail on the first encounter and either adopt a player-generated name or something neutral, e.g. Little Green Rat Men, and unrelated to the monster manual name upon subsequent encounters. Players shouldn't immediately know the danger they are faced with, and descriptions of fantastical beasts should ideally evoke wonder. A monster manual description of any creature, especially in 5e, are largely mechanical, and the illustrations usually that profoundly uninspiring, lowest common denominator derivative sort of fantasy art. Because of this, and as long as one doesn't stray too far from the mechanical aspects of the enemy in combat, Everything else can be changed, modified, reskinned, or transformed without serious work. It is a fundamentally lazy and bad game master that doesn't figure out how their goblins are different, why they are different, and how that affects the game. And it's fundamentally lazy and bad adventure design when a published product doesn't do it. This is one of the gripes I have about Lost Minds of Fandelver and other Watsi published adventures. They seem to think that an encounter is mostly found in the mechanics of a set-piece combat, rather than description, wonder, and fiction. Referring directly to a monster manual, or otherwise reducing an encounter to a line of statistics without some evocative nugget of description, is a real waste of an encounter. Nor is making mechanically simple enemies interesting through description, or even making them frightening especially hard. With goblins, all the GM need retain is that they are small, fairly weak, and intelligent, to what degree is less important. Their appearance and description can vary wildly. There's really very little limitation on how one can describe a goblin. Fey changeling children, blue hairy muppet things, bipedal mole rats with human hands, pack-hunting versions of Weekly World News' famous Bat Boy, spindly fairy tale creatures that steal teeth or broken haunted toys, whatever one likes and whatever best fits one's setting and adventure. B. Show, don't tell. As De Anastasio suggests, making encounters hold clues, information, and evocative detail can make them more interesting. While the joke of the orc shouting, Gothrog, no, as the party cuts his companion down, and the dying orc replying, I'll always love you, Goriax, is a classic in making your players question their murderous approach to everything, and really not a terrible way to explain a past morale check either, it might not be the most meaningful or interesting, something that enlivens a combat, even a bland one, with details and provides a much larger meaning is a worthwhile tool in the GM kit. This suggests a principle of adventure design, that encounters are best when they fit into a location. As suggested above, this isn't a matter of having to pick creatures from a monster manual that match the biome or feel of a location. Almost anything can and should be reskinned with the proper feel. It means giving both intrinsic and extrinsic meaning slash interest to an encounter. By intrinsic interest, I mean that the encounter itself should have something in it, explaining why and how it happened. Goblins, for example, shouldn't just be encountered. They should be doing something, looting a room, drawing crude graffiti, more of which can be found elsewhere, cooking rats on a stick, lost and scared, or running from something else. Whatever the intrinsic interest in the encounter, it should tell something about the creature encountered, 
or the environment, providing clues to what else might be waiting around the next corner. Extrinsic interest is more general, an encounter that reveals a new foe or faction, a clue about the faction relationships. Without risk, combat is boring. The heart of Anastasio's complaint isn't really that goblins are boring. Sure, they are, but the problem is that fighting them in Dungeons & Dragons is a boring waste of playtime. I'd propose that this is because fighting a small group of goblins, such as the paltry gangs in Lost Mines of Fendelver, is nearly risk-free for the players. That is, a party of adventurers in direct rules-as-written combat, that is, without the tactics of fictional positioning, such as ambushing the enemy from above, or adjudicating the effects of a novel effort to frighten the enemy by pretending to be a ghost, will massacre a group of goblins without significant risk of injury, depletion of resources, or need for attention. This is a dull situation that feels like a chore and wastes valuable game time, but really, there's only one way to resolve it. To make every encounter risky in some way. Make every encounter either offer a risky opportunity or threaten something that the party cares about. Not necessarily the lives of the PCs, but something. A. Goblins don't like to fight. Let's assume that a group of goblins, or similarly runty but not unintelligent creatures, knows that it's near the bottom of the dungeon food chain. Why would such a group of creatures launch itself at a marauding gang of heavily armed, magically potent adventurers? However little goblins value their lives, they must place some value on continuing to survive, and engaging in direct face-to-face -face combat with powerful enemies seems like something they should know isn't conductive to survival. This isn't to say that every group of enemies weaker than the party or suffering from feelings of inadequacy should flee immediately. The hungry beast might try to grab a single victim and flee, and the intelligent creature might engage in a wide variety of behaviors to benefit itself at the expense of the party. What's needed is expanding the palette of encounter options. With 3.5 and 4th editions as its guides and the school most of its designers learned in, 5e often takes the approach of these additions and maximizes the possibility and desirability of combat as the goal of the encounter. Perhaps it's having written up specific rules for challenge rating, or perhaps it's just laziness. But again, goblins don't want to die. And unless they think they can win, or are hopped up on some really good mushrooms, they do not attack immediately. In the past, reactions and encounters, unless the enemy got surprised, were dealt with via a reaction roll, a test to see what mood the monster was in and how disposed to violence over chat it was. This role often emphasizes interaction and parlay over combat, and it's one reason why knowing monster languages was useful in early game editions. Intelligent enemies, or unintelligent ones with certain behaviors, can attempt to do many things other than fight make noise to draw more dangerous enemies, attempt to bully and rob the party, offer to help the party and lead them into betrayal or traps, try to steal from the party, attempt to encourage the party to fight their enemies, offer to aid the party for money, view the party as rescuers and try to enlist their help in earnest, flee into the darkness, offer maps and other services in exchange for escape, tell rumors, 
try to get the party drunk. Really, the list is endless, and each of these options is far more interesting than a fight that the party will triumph in without risk after wasting 20 minutes or more of playtime. B. Swords are always dangerous. The use of monsters purely based on their mechanical purpose and role became popular with 3.5 edition D&D and carried over into 4th edition with its carefully balanced tactical battles, CR, and monster combat roles, brute, controller, etc. And this method of encounter design may function when the locus of play is tactical combat between an antagonistic GM and players, meant to be mediated by strict adherence to the rules as written, but feels artificial, clumsy, and unsatisfying when playing an exploration game, and when the combat itself is boring, its end virtually predetermined and without any larger meaning. This appears to be the mechanical gist of De Anastasio's complaint about goblin fights, entirely independent of issues with initiative. And if one wants to play D&D as a tactical combat game, I suppose the answer is to never create a combat encounter without risk for the character. In the early editions I favor, combat is almost always dangerous to the party, and the mechanics very quick and simple. It doesn't matter that much if one is 6th level and one's enemies are a pack of 1st level goblins. They can cause injury, reduce HP, and waste resources. If the weak enemies get lucky and concentrate their fire well, they might even inflict serious injury or kill a PC. Of course, in this sort of game, Combat is not rewarded with experience, and is almost always considered a failure by players. With these sorts of mechanics, goblin encounters simply don't happen much, and when they do, they are over very quickly. In 5th edition, creating dangerous encounters with weak enemies may be hard. It's a system designed to give even low-level characters a great deal of survivability, and the ability to dominate combat situations with an assortment of powers. It's also complex enough that even short combats take up a considerable amount of playtime. For a scene-based, combat-centric game, I don't really have a solution except to throw dangerous enemies at the party in dangerous situations. An ambush on a lava bridge or something. And with goblins, I suppose this might mean taking a page from the wretchedly antagonistic but creative GMing of Tucker's kobolds, and placing weak opponents in advantageous situations. If one isn't running D&D as a series of complex combats, the answers above about de-emphasizing combat within overleveled encounters may serve better, but adjusting the tactics of intelligent enemies, like goblins, also makes sense. Hopefully, the combination of evocative monster design, organic naturalistic encounters that potentially provide detail about the location, faction play, and tactical novelty that creates risk are solutions to boring goblin encounters, even for new groups and GMs. It's not hard to be creative about what enemies the party faces and the world one is building to play in, and this sort of creativity is the core of a good tabletop experience. Note on Vanilla D&D While De Anastasio's article is great to see, both because it shows the growing popularization of D&D and because it suggests that even people playing the most mundane and soulless sort of D&D, the setting and adventure adapted directly from Watsi's published material, are thinking about the game, and being creative in their efforts to improve it, the essence of what makes tabletop role-playing fun and interesting. Unfortunately, the folks coming to 5e and Forgotten Realms 
are held back in some serious ways. Above, I noted that De Anastasio has suggestions and wants to make her goblins interesting, but doesn't suggest the easiest step of redefining what a goblin is, reskinning and describing them as something horrible and unknowable. Like many who are new to the game, the lazy implied setting of Forgotten Realms seems a fixed idea. Goblins are already defined as a pointless fight, a monster that takes up time without meaning something subject to grinding rather than a legitimate element of a collective storytelling game. I'd suggest this is because the idea of Goblin has become refined and clarified in the years since The Little Brown Book came out. Popular culture now knows the distinction between Orc and Goblin, a distinction that in 1974 was esoteric and unclear even in its source, Tolkien. A lot of this distinction began with the codification in Gygax's D&D, from where it entered the childhood taxonomies of an entire generation of future creators. Video games, films, novels, comics, and all things fantasy are informed by the collective understanding that a goblin is a 1 HD minus 1 creature with an armor class of 6, an annoyance and the weakest foe on the ladder of true humanoid enemies. Kobolds are strange, partially due to the affection they get as little dragon men, partially because of the infamous Tucker linked above. This view of the goblin has filtered back into D&D, making the goblin a fodder enemy, something to be ignored and maligned. Vanilla D&D doesn't examine this issue. It doesn't try to interrogate or contemplate the wonder and potential terror that is implicit in the small, horrible person-not-person -person thing trying to kill you with a rusty knife in a dark cave. I remember my first session of D&D a foray into the kobold cave in B2, Keep on the Borderlands. My fighters, Fred and Charlie leading the way, our party was attacked by a swarm of giant rats. It was 1983 or so, and as a small child, I'd never heard of a giant rat. But with a few bits of description from a likewise youthful game master, nothing special, red eyes, naked tail as long as your arm, that sort of thing, the idea of huge hungry rats was terrifying, as it still should be if one contemplates how one might react to a Doberman-sized sewer rat ambling in from the kitchen. The rats were backed up by a band of tiny orange rat people, who were angry at our slaughter of their cows when we tried to talk to them, and refused to be mollified by offers of peace due to their rage at the dead livestock and pets. The GM may have been better than I give him credit for, because I still think of kobolds as surviving on a rat-cheese-based diet, and at the time it all seemed very wondrous, a bit frightening, and compelled me to play more just to discover what else might be down in that kobold burrow, which I thought of as looking rather like a gopher tunnel. Vanilla fantasy, in many ways, robs players of these sorts of moments. It smothers wonder because it views the game world as set, quotidian, and fully comprehensible without complexity. For example, magical healing may be commonplace, but the issues of access to it or its effects on urban growth and mortality rates are never examined or touched on. Vanilla fantasy dumbs down and drains the fantastic of wonder, both by sticking to now cliched imagery and by asking its consumers to passively interact without examining the strange possibilities that its assumptions generate. Tabletop games, because they aren't pre-generated content, 
offer a unique opportunity for the players to step past or through Vanilla Fantasy's limitations and to bring in whatever elements they can imagine. And this is worth doing, because if one is simply playing D&D as a way to fight goblins in a cave without asking why there are goblins, and why there's caves, and what these things might look like beyond some vague pastiche of Tolkien and 80s children's cartoons, one is missing out on a great deal of fun. That was Fighting Goblins in a Creative Wasteland, read by Nick L.S. Whalen. Blogs on Tape is a project that aims to make audio recordings of the best works in the OSR, making them more accessible for everyone. If you have an OSR blog and would like to give me permission to read from it, you can reach me at ls at paperspencils.com. Thank you for listening.